Norma and I will be talking. Carol, Caroline, Norma, and I will be talking about Andrea Dworkin's letter from a war zone. Um, this series of webinars is run by radical feminists whose voices have been canceled or silenced in universities, schools, and media. Frustrated that we cannot share what we know in these places, we're offering this online series of webinars here. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll be talking about uh, Andrea Dworkin's letter from a war zone. Um, this is a really interesting book. Um, it, uh, it's a collection of short, um, of short essays, um, a whole host of them. They are, uh, it was published in 1993. It um, contains essays, speeches, interviews, book reviews, um, written from 1976 to 1987. She taught briefly English literature at the University of Minnesota. So there's a couple of essays that are um, the like lecture notes and things that she talked about a couple of books. Um, if you have never read any Andrea Dworkin, um, this book may be interesting and, and useful to you because it gives you a wide sampling of her writing. Um, it's got sort of the Reader's Digest condensed versions of her work. Um, and it talks about her personal life and the woman behind um, the in-your-face writing. Andrea Dworkin is sometimes include, uh, accused of being man-hating or, you know, uh, or just a lot of negative things. But um, when you read this, there is um, an incredibly compassionate woman under there, um, and you, you find out about who she was um, as a person. If you have read all or much of Andrea Dworkin, this is a good book because it gives you a glimpse of what she went through to write individual books. Talks about living in poverty, not being able to make a living, lost and denied opportunities, um, dealings with publishers, which um, are sometimes very, very acrimonious, um, her personal life, she was abused by her husband, she was raped, um, and really how she approached and what inspired um, certain of her books. Uh, some of the essays are, are synopses or, or um, distilled versions of longer versions of the key ideas in her, lo in her longer works. Um, and there's also, it's also in some ways a chronicle of her life. It, talk, you know, it talks about um, public milestones, the, the Take Back the Night March in San Francisco in 1978, um, the Women Against Pornography March in New York City in, um, in 1979. Um, on page five, she talks about why she writes it all, which is a kind of a good place to start. And she says that um, I wrote these pieces because I believe that women must wage a war against silence, against socially coerced silence, against politically preordained silence, against economically choreographed silence, against the silence created by the pain and despair of sexual abuse and second class status. Um, so that is, like a really, a really good, um, again, distilled version of like who she was and why she wrote. Um, she, the, the first essay is called The Lie, um, and it starts off with really in your face, Andrea Dworkin, that uh, the lie is that women want to be abused, hurt, hit, uh, forced into sex. Um, the uh, latter part of the book is a large section that contains essays on pornography and strictly on pornography. That was a, um, a topic which she um, wrote a lot about um, and which she was um, very, very passionate about. Um, so if you don't have the book, um, Pornography, Men Possessing Women, um, or you haven't read it or you can't get it, 
reading that section of essays is a, uh, a really good distillation down of everything she was trying to say about pornography, which also um, uh, is, you know, suffused throughout the book as well. Um, it, one of the early essays is on pornography and grief, and she talks about the women's movement. We used to call it the women's movement. She talks about, about the women's movement forcing us all to face the facts, um, and that pornography is what men want and will not give up. Um, Caroline, what are your thoughts about what the book is, the way it's written, and, and where, would, where would you start if somebody was just kind of dip a toe in? It doesn't have to be at the very beginning. Yeah, that was that was a great summary, Marion. I think you've got it exactly. Um, just to, I'm just saying again what you just said, but really the book is fascinating for the backstory it gives both to her life and probably her life. We can obviously read in other works by her, but also the the writing, as you say, Marion, the writing process and the extent to which she was censored and had enormous trouble with publishers. Um, wasn't just publishers either. It was with authors and editors and with um, any sponsors of speaking events um, in terms of, yeah, having, I think at one speaking event that she'd been sponsored to attend in difficult circumstances too, like traveling across the country in a bus in cold weather and the rest of it. The minute she started talking, that person in the audience decided that they didn't, they didn't like what she was saying and they ran out of the venue and she was left without accommodation for that night. I mean, that, that kind of level of um, you know, utter disrespect and hardship, you know, inflicted upon Andrew Dawkins as she, she wrote these things for us. Sort of, it was really interesting to read. It was also interesting to read with, with the, she's got a couple of chat, a couple of small papers on the pornography issue to start the volume, which is appropriate because a lot of volume is about her um, theorising of pornography. But after that, then sisters will read, um, yeah, her reflections on writing um, and her life as a writer. So she obviously, as sisters here know, um, she took herself very seriously as a writer in the writing process and the need for writers within our political movement was de a deadly serious thing for her. I think at one point she said, um, I don't have a gender identity, I don't have a sexuality, I am a woman writer. <laughs> kind of made me laugh, um, wonder what Stoltenberg thought of that uh, dismissive idea about gender identity. But um, yeah, so she uh, talks us through the uh, nature of writing and its importance. And I thought that that discussion was really nice for um, what it contributed to our webinars, our little webinar series, or uh, that other sisters are certainly organising really well. Um, in that she, Dawkins uh, emphasises the uh, fact that uh, writers, even of her calibre, of even herself and earlier uh, female feminist writers, um, are actively disappeared. Their books are actively put out of print, actively suppressed, um, and that she, uh, you know, encourages us to keep writing and to keep discussing the writing, to keep disseminating it. And at, at different points in the book, she sort of actually thanks feminists for all the work they did to get her books republished in different countries or, um, uh, yeah, re new editions in other countries and things like that. Uh, from there, there was, I've always got things to say that I end up forgetting. Um, I'll go in that case uh, to one, at least one, well, I'll just go to one topic that I thought. So the book, um, many of the chapters in the book are reprints of speeches that she's given at places like universities, and it appears that the aim of those speeches primarily were to um, incite or encourage women to action against pornography in any form whatsoever. So they're very heavy rhetorically and perhaps a little bit light 
theoretically. That's for some of them, I mean, the early days especially. And I think that's a, a product of its time. I mean, back in those days, you know, women quite generally probably didn't know the content of pornography. It needed to be described to them. And I did feel that perhaps those chapters are a little bit dated now in terms of, you know, feminist politics and activism. Uh, but there are other chapters that I th thought certainly weren't, and some of them just leaked off the page in terms of their relevance for today. Uh, one of them was the uh, 1979 chapter, and this was a, a, a written piece. Look, Dick, look, see Jane Blowett, 1979. And she discusses the um, transition that was happening at the time on abortion politics. So on page 30, 130, I'll just quickly read this out, but I promise it's really relevant for what we're facing today. Dawkins says, quote, with a feminist redefinition of the importance of abortion, that is with abortion defined as an essential component of a woman's right to control her body, that control also including and often necessitating the use of the dreaded word, no, men became apathetic or simply changed sides. In other words, they'd been on the, the abortion rights side before, but not now. And this is back in 1979. They created a vacuum, which the organised right lost no time in filling. We won the right to legal abortion on our own, but the right is now piece by piece taking it away from us. Enter the conquering heroes, those who abdicated all responsibility when it mattered so much, who will now help us at a price. The price is reinvolvement with politics as they define it, an acceptance of their political priorities. For the last decade, the male left has been the front line of the male right, buttressing it by strategies geared towards destroying feminists. As our right-wing enemies have gained strength and arrogance, women have become more and more afraid, more and more afraid of crossing leftist men, more and more afraid of defining our priorities in our own terms. Women running scared are more subject to the pressure of men on us to conform, to re-enter the world of the colonised woman. And the colonisation, she repeats throughout this book in different chapters, in that we must understand yeah. that, yeah, women become colonised. And, yeah, you might want to say more about that, Marianne. That was a big theme. But, um, yeah, so relevant for today about what's happening with the abortion issue. Yeah, she she talks about colonisation. I mean, from that same essay, and we may do a little bit more <clears throat> reading from the author's works than we ordinarily do because it's, it's so good and, and you know, um, we need to kind of pull things out. She says that in that same essay that women are especially given to giving up what we know and feel to be right and true for the sake of others or for the sake of something more important than ourselves. This is because the condition in which women live is a colonized condition. Women are colonized by men in body and mind, defined everywhere as evil when we act in our own self-interest. We strive to be good by renouncing self-interest altogether. Um, and she notes that one characteristic especially defines the colonized mind of a woman. She will put the experience of men before her own. She will grant a male life greater importance than her own. Did you want to talk more about this essay? There's so much to, I mean, there's so much to move on to. One of the, <clears throat> one of the um, essays that really kind of caught me by surprise and um, I read this book a while ago and had forgotten about this one. She taught at University of Minnesota. She taught um, English literature. Um, that have been great. And she said that she basically just picked out books she likes and taught those. And um, some of these essays are like compilations of her um, of her, her notes, her teaching notes. And one book was Wuthering Heights um, by Emily Bronte. Um, it, 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 and it's 
I mean, I kind of remembered the book and I remembered that Heathcliff was, you know, he wanted to kill him halfway through it. Um, but she um, analyzed it. She, 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 you know, provided a radical feminist analysis. And it's, um, you know, I started wondering, did is this something Emily Bronte was, uh, was prescient about? Um, but um, Borkin goes on to say that the book was really about the family as a paradigm of society, especially for the creation of sadism in men, that sadism is created in men through physical and psychological abuse and humiliation by other men. So the main lesson of power that they learn is, is to feel no empathy. Someone has power over you and you in turn um, seek power over others. And the lesson that you learn from this is empathy. So that the great morals of the book of Wuthering Heights is that we become what we are taught to be, um, nurture over nature. And that um, is um, a, a really important thing because it's a, it's a very common debate. And she goes on in a later essay that has nothing to do with Wuthering Heights to talk about biological superiority as the world's most dangerous and deadly idea. She was against biological determinism um, and compared it to uh, um, the Nazis regarding the Jews with a number of quotes from Mein Kampf and some other um, of the uh, literature at the time. Um, and she noted that, you know, she tried to um, explain what, what men think of, uh, uh, let's see, what men think women's biology mean. Here's it, here it is. And she says, um, as a class, and this is important, this is, this is like men saying that who we are biologically defines our entire existence, um, but they are, uh, she didn't use the words, they are confusing or conflating gender with sex. As a class, not necessarily as individuals, we can bear children. From this, according to male supremacist ideology, all other, our other attributes and potentialities are derived on the pedestal immobile like waxen statues, statues, or in the gutter, failed icons, mired in shit. We are exalted or degraded because our biological traits are what they are, citing genes, genitals, DNA, pattern-releasing smells, biograms, hormones, or whatever's in vogue. Male supremacists make their case, which is in essence that we are biologically too good, too bad, or too different to do anything other than reproduce and serve men sexually and domestically. Um, I know this, uh, uh, you read this essay, essay and that you have a few other things to say about Caroline. Well, I think, I mean, it, you've been, I don't know, you've been a little bit kind to talk and, and it's certainly a good essay and it was a speech, um, but the as sisters might already know about the context of this discussion that she launches into was in, in her telling of the story. I don't, I wasn't there and I don't know. In 1977, she was asked to give a speech at, uh, the Lesbian Pride Week in New York City. Uh, in her words, in front of 200 lesbians um, in, in a hall, apparently. And uh, before there had been speakers before her, and apparently one of these speakers, if not more, had um, insisted upon biologically defined ideas of lesbianism and had insisted upon lesbian separatism, which she, she does uh, give a, a vote of credit to, by the way, Dawkin, in, in this uh, particular chapter. But nonetheless, uh, she, the, re the, the unlikely reason why this chapter appears to have been written appears to have been because she had this experience at Lesbian Pride Week. And the experience was is that she came on the stage after these women had talked about, you know, biological women, women's biology being superior to men, 
um, and you know women's reproductive abilities, making us unique and special and uh, genetically um, superior to men. That kind of uh, discussion, um, and uh, then uh, came on and. Uh, women in the audience apparently started to heckle her about her sexuality. And the description sounds absolutely awful, um, yeah. awful. But apparently they, you know, are you bisexual? And this kind of silliness, like, started to, you know, force her to go into a struggle <coughs> session uh, with them in the audience, which is very odd. Um, and then Dawkins admits to um, sort of taking a bit of an out and saying, um, avoiding the sexuality issue and talking about being Jewish or something. I wasn't quite sure in order to, I think, I mean, I think this is her admission. It's not me putting a spin on it. I think in the, the writing of that chapter, she's sort of saying, I went for the Jewish um, label to kind of uh, sort of buffer myself from the barrage of the yeah. um, public lynching, which, which is absolutely, if it did happen like that, then that, that is crazy and terrible. But I, yeah, and I'm not being negative about the chapter, but I have to say, I mean, this chapter, is I think is a mistake in its argumentation because the ending of it, it starts out with this story and then it, it uh, argues really well against um, biological essentialism. And then the end of it is to suggest that actually feminists are becoming like Nazis themselves and could end up um, enslaving men. And you know, if we if we retain these biologically essentialist ideas, then you know, that would just turn us into men and that means that we will become superior to men and treat men like they've treated us. I mean, that, that argument, I mean, it was written in 1977, so she was young. I, I think that, like, ending the argument on that, kind of in that direction, is, is discrediting. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, like you, Marion, I, I thought this, this chapter is really worth reading um, because it's about us. It's not about men's... We, we know men subscribe to ideas of biological superiority and essentialism, but it's about what the political implications are for us as, as feminists, as a political movement, to upholding them. And, you know, as you know, you know, Marion and sisters, you know, this is the big discussion of our movement today with the gender critical, um, you know, confronting transgenderism issue um, in that, number one, we're having sisters relying on biology very heavily and attempting to fend off that attack, understandably, and that's not, you know, you know, expediency and all sorts of things are driving that. But, I mean, I'll, I'll read a quote from Dworkin about, you know, what politically that means for us. I think it's really serious that we, we are using arguments. And, and Kathleen Stock and Michael Biggs, I mean, they are literally, and, and again, this is no criticism because it's good that they're engaging in debate and discussion, they do, uh, but literally they're saying that the radical feminist um, understanding of social constructionism has promoted our current um, issues with transgenderism and therefore, you know, we've got to get back to, you know, the biological fundamentals. I mean, that they really are pushing in that direction and some sisters are following in that direction. But obviously in this chapter, Dworkin tells us politically what that really means. And I, um, obviously Sheila Jeffries presents us with uh, the, the, the exact opposite of that in that I think Sheila Jeffries theorising and her public speaking on this program and others um, is that we need to understand transgenderism, transgenderism as an affront to ourselves <clears throat> as a political class and as an insult and a humiliation of that class. We need to fight on class pride grounds and, you know, lots of other grounds, but we need to make it an issue of sex class, um, you know, comeback. But anyway, sorry, Mariana, I know I'm taking up too much, so just one quote and then I'll finish. But um, so on the point about 
you know, if we are attempting to be expedient or for whatever reason we're insisting upon these ideas of biological lesbianism or biology as being a argumentation framework for arguing against transgenderism, then Dworkin would say to us um, that Uh, the price we pay is that we become carriers of the disease we must cure. So the the great so that's that's the key argument against it. And the context of that quote is that on page 115, uh, Dawkins says, "Pull toward an ideology based on the moral and social significance of a distinct female biology because of its emotional and philosophical familiarity, drawn to the spiritual dignity inherent in a female principle." essentially is defined by men, she says, of course, um, unable to abandon by will or impulse a lifelong and centuries-old commitment to childbearing as the female creative act. So she's not being dismissive of these feelings among us. I have these feelings too. Uh, it's not dismissing them. But she's saying women have increasingly tried to transform the very ideology that has enslaved us into a dynamic, religious, psychologically compelling celebration of female biological potential this attempted transformation may have survival value. That is, the worship of our procreative capacity as power may temporarily stay the male supremacist hand that cradles the test tube. And then she says, but the price we pay for that is that we become carriers of the disease we must cure. I think she is being dismissive of it as a way, and I was going to read that. I was going to start a little earlier in that paragraph where she says that um, more and more feminists have been advocating social, spiritual, and mythological models that are female supremacist and or matriarchal. And to, and to her, to me, this, she says, this advocacy signifies a basic conformity to the tenets of biological determinism that underpin the male social system. Um, and then she goes on to the quote you said, I think what she's, and in the um, passage before that, um, she, she talks about the same thing. Um, and and I think that she um, was anticipating or maybe seeing the beginnings or, or um, you know, the, the roots of this um, uh, feminine essence um, that so many women, including radical feminists, seem to think is, um, has some sort of basis in objectively verifiable reality, that it's somehow biological, that we somehow um, want to take care of children, that we somehow um, are more tender, um, because it is a biological reality and not because it's what we have been socialized into from the day we are born. And I, you know, um, and I, you know, the, I understand what the inspiration is when you were talking about that lecture where she was confronted, which was a really horrible thing to do to her, um, is that she, uh, is, is that she wanted to say, look, men are socialized into being, well, she says, um, what did she call them? Moral cretins. Um, but that men are socialized into, um, you know, violation and domination. Those are the core values of male socialization. <clears throat> they are the way they are <clears throat> because that is what they were taught to be. That's what she, you know, that's what she um, um, taught in Wuthering Heights <clears throat> is that we are what we are taught to be um, and, and that it is true for women also. We, you know, we, we can't just, we can't blame um, men for being what they are just because it's in their bi biology and we can't take credit for who we are just because it's in our biology because it isn't. It's not true for men and it's not true for us. So this somehow divine feminine essence is just, that's a belief that you can have 
um, but it is not supported any more than the belief that men are biologically determined to be monsters. Um, if they're monsters, it's because that's what they're socialized into from the day they're born. And that's what, that was the lesson of Wuthering Heights. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, somebody asked the name of this essay and yeah. it's called um, Biological Superiority, the World's Most Dangerous and Deadly Idea. Yeah. 1977, yeah, it's about in the middle of the book, yeah. Sorry, Marianne, sorry, sisters. I, I, yeah, I, but, but I think, Marianne, I, I think everyone will agree, well, the sisters here and everyone listening will agree with you. I think that's the, the, the easier path to take. Well, let's see. I think that's the, um, that, yes, that's the version of the biological essentialism that sisters here, I think, will universally object to. But we're not seeing it manifested really in that way, are we, in our political movement these days? But the way that we're seeing it manifested is in sisters using arguments about female biology to uh, combat transgenderism. I mean, the, just by saying, um, no, you know, there can't be any such thing as trans women because obviously men and women have completely different biologies and therefore it's just a matter of fact and truth and therefore that's why transgenderism can't swing in terms of women. I mean, that, that argument is a fairly standard one, gets made all the time. It feels like you're sort of winning when you make it. But I think, I think, I mean, I think Dworkin's discussion here would prohibit us from making that argument. I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's not a, it's a, it's a lazy argument in respect of where it not, you know, confronting the political fight that we need to have that I think Sheila Jeffries' work kind of more models for us in a better way, that we need to say woman face across the board is an insult to our class and sort of fight it on class grounds rather than always go back to the, yes, but truth, yes, but biology, yes, but fact, fact in the world, of course men and women are different. Yeah. Uh, she's talking about behaviours. She's talking about learned behaviours. She's not talking about, I mean, you know, the, the transgenderism is nonsense because, you know, there's a, an objectively verifiable reality of male and female, but she's talking about, about learned behaviors and socialized behaviors. And that's what she is saying is not biologically determined. And, you know, we kind of do see that a lot. Um, you know, somebody, uh, um, somebody uh, uh, said, is there not a biological component to our behaviors? I'm a scientist. I mean, that's, you know, I, my background is in biological science, including medicine. Um, and, um, testosterone does not cause aggression. Testosterone suppresses the front part of your brain, the frontal lobe, which is the part of your brain that um, helps you make, that help, that keeps you from making really stupid, poor decisions. Um, it, and the more testosterone gets flooded to your frontal lobe, the more likely you are to do things that are very foolish, which is why young men, for example, when they are, um, when they're, um, you know, stimulated to go and, you know, be soldiers and come on boys and let's do it. It's the emotional content that causes the outpouring of testosterone, suppresses the front part of the brain, and they run into, um, you know, mortar fire from the enemies um, because testosterone has suppressed. the part. And that's why they also do, why young men also do a whole lot of other stupid things. Um, but it's the, uh, it's the socialization that says this is what men do um, that causes the, uh, 
the uh, you know a, a cycle in the brain uh, you know neurons and hormonal releases and things like that so and that is you know it's it's very complicated i don't really want to get into it anymore um but but that that's the kind of thing she's talking about is that um is that um the uh, not to conflate um the socialized behavior with um just simple biological realities um yeah, but yeah, I agree. But, right but don't forget, Marianne. I mean, this this was she she wrote this chapter in rebuttal to I know. the I know. the hecklers that she got in the audience. You know, lesbians saying that you know, he, whatever they awful things they you know, attempted. To... She took it further, though. That's that's what I'm saying is that she. I understand the impetus for writing the chapter, but she took it further, like and at the very end. Yeah, that's she said that we, feminists might become Nazis. So she said at the end. Well, I mean, yeah, that was you know, I I I I get what yeah, I mean that's that was a a pretty uh um a pretty bold thing to say, which is sort of what Andrea Dworkin was famous for. Um, she she did have a good foundation though in radical feminism, and there's a another essay further on feminism and agenda written in 1983. This was a speech at Hamilton College. Um, and one thing she mentioned, which actually was true in a, in a number of speeches she gave, especially on colleges, um, the male students there tried to break into the building on campus where she was staying because um, they were, you know, they were so angry at what she was talking about. And that happened in a couple of other places, too. It happened in 1976 in, um, um, in Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts, you know, male students. It happened in um, someplace else as well. Um, but in this in this um, essay. It, it, she talks about, you know, she says the normal stuff that happens to women, um, you know, the abuse of the criminal, the violating stuff is considered normal by society at large. It's so systematic that it appears that women are not being abused because these things are so commonplace and that the women's movement, which is what feminism was called, there was no radical feminism or any other, well, I mean, it was social feminism and lesbian feminism, but basically feminism was feminism. Um, and it was not only, at least in the United States, it was not only a movement for freedom, justice, and equality. Um, she said that we were we were also trying to eliminate suffering and to end the suffering of women. Um, and she goes on to talk about um, that uh, the goal of society we live in is to achieve happiness, consumer happiness. You're supposed to get happiness from lip gloss and 24 hours of television every day. That means you're not supposed to feel pain. You might not know what it is you do feel, but you must not feel pain. One of the things the women's movement does is to make you feel pain, which is why so many women just say, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You're looking on the dark side. Um, she says that, you know, we must not feel pain. But one of the things it, it, women's movement does makes us feel pain. You feel your own pain. You feel the pain of other women, the pain of sisters whose lives you can barely imagine. You have to have a lot of courage to accept that if you commit yourself over the long term, not just for three months, not for a year, not for two years, but for a lifetime in feminism to the women's movement that you are going to live with a lot of pain. Um, this is a very hard, hard thing to, um, to, to hear. This tells us if you if you read a lot of Dworkin or if you're going to um, how much she was was affected by the women she talked to, by the experiences she had. Um, when she talks about rape in another essay in the book, she talks about all the women that she talked about, that she has spoken with um, throughout different talks she has given. She talks about her own rape um, and she talks about that it, it becomes unbearable. It becomes absolutely unbearable um, and it's very painful. 
And this is um, what page am I reading from in the book? Um, page 138. <laughs> um, this is why she, uh, um, this is why so many women um, reject, even if you, you know, even if they um, are sympathetic to parts of what we are talking about, um, can't deal. They just simply can't deal with it because it's too painful. Um, and women's subordinate place in society, you know, she goes on to say, begins and is defined by our bodies, our lack of sexual and reproductive integrity. Again, talking about the primacy of bodies. We are women because of our bodies. Um, and that's, that's what, that is the foundation of why we are subordinate. Um, we have, um, you know, reproductive capacity to bear children, even though we don't all bear children. Um, but our bodies, you know, are what um, gives us our subordinate place in society. This essay, um, Feminism and Agenda, it's like a short book in and of itself. It's like a primer of sorts that summarizes one, the agenda of the early women's liberation movement, at least in the U.S., and two, the, rad the radical feminist analysis at the foundation of it. And if you wanted a good primer about, you know, the nuts and bolts of radical feminism, this would be a, a pretty good place to start. But if you don't get what it was about, you know, so if you don't get what it was about and, and what we're all saying, this is like the cliff notes. I don't know if you have, you have cliff notes in other countries. No, you've lost me on that one, Marion. Oh, it's um, uh, uh, college students. Um, there's these things called cliff notes. And um, oh. you read a book, so you don't actually have to read the whole book. You don't have to read Wuthering Heights. You read a book that says, this is what Wuthering Heights was about. And here he puts this. Anyway. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> cheat sheets. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Marion. I mean, on, on that, I mean, the just reading this book of line letters from a war zone, alone gives you a real historical sense of the American radical feminist movement in its early days because it goes right back to the, the essays in the compilation go back to 1976 and they span right up until 1987 and you see not only Dawkins ideas changing and evolving over that time but also conditions changing that she seems to be in as she she writes which were amazing um, and so it's a real historical document as well useful um, but on that point and I'm not Oh, I'm being such a devil's advocate at every turn tonight. I don't mean to be. Um, <laughs> just, I'm just always struck by the difference. And I keep mentioning Sheila's work too. I don't know why. I don't know. It just seems to be a constant contrast with things in various things. But isn't it interesting how Dawkins, through the body of her work, tells us about the hardship? Like, like you're saying there, Marion, she says, you know, um, you have to have a lot of courage to accept that if you commit yourself over the long term, not just for three months, not for a year, not for two years, but for a lifetime to feminism, to the women's movement, that you are going to live with a lot of pain in this country, that is not a fashionable thing to do. So be prepared for the therapists and be prepared for the prescriptions. Be prepared for all the people who tell you that it's your problem, not a social problem, et cetera, et cetera, which is completely legitimate, understandable, 100% correct and true, I think. But isn't it funny that in Sheila's work, she gives us... <laughs> this <laughs> happy and liberationary, liberatory and um, find a girlfriend and, you know, live a good life um, by joining the, the uh, women's liberation movement. Um, and they're living, I mean, the, the, the time periods are probably slightly different that are being discussed here. And obviously they're different countries, different people. And I don't doubt also that Sheila Jeffries uh, also experienced um you know, different hard times as well. And, and, and also obviously Dworkin had a very special life in that she was 
targeted for a specific sort of the pornography issue and targeted, and obviously uh, America has a pornography industry and that makes a big difference. Anti-pornography campaigners in, in countries that have a, uh, an actual industry operating are in a different situation to, to those that don't, I believe. Um, so in Japan, to the anti-pornography activists here face a different situation because they've got an industry, but in Australia we don't. Um, but yeah, all that aside, um, I suppose it's just it's just a I mean it's a philosophical viewpoint about how to you know rally the troops and build move you know build our movement and that kind of thing and I think both both are right I don't particularly think either one's the wrong way I mean obviously my experience has been you know I've benefited no, I, massively I through feminism I yeah, yeah I mean I met my partner at one of the gay dances at NYU in 1973 um, you know and we had 33 years together. Um, and when I tell young lesbians now um, about what it was like, you know, the bars and the bookstores and the, and the discussion, when I tell them about what it was like, uh, you know, and, and how it was just like, you could go to a different place every single night of the week and meet 200 different lesbians in each place every single night of the week. I mean, they, you know, you know and, and there was like serial monogamy and women dating countless women and not having to... And there was there was no men, no matter how they identified. Um, and and young lesbians just are like, oh, that sounds so wonderful. So so yeah, um, you know, women and and it, that was for lesbians. And outside of that, in the wider women's community, there were women's discussion groups. There was consciousness written. There was a ton of stuff that was incredible and made our lives um, richer um, and 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 pretty wonderful and women need to know about that as well because that was part of it as well Andrea Dworkin though was um ride or die um she really was she um one of the uh um one of the things she gets accused of a lot is that she was uh really man-hating um and one of the essays further on in the book is I want a 24-hour truce during which there is no rape from 1983, and many, many, many women will have heard of that if they have not read it. It was a speech at the, um, get this, Midwest Regional Conference of the National Organization for Changing Men. Um, this was, yes, that's really what it was, and it was apparently men who, um, you know, uh, who of their day decided that men could be better people. So the audience was about 500 men and some scattered women, um, and she said that the men reacted with, um, and I quote, um, considerable love and support and also with considerable anger. However, only one of them physically threatened her. Um, she, the, the, um, the essay was, the speech was about male power over women um, and men believing that they have the right to rape, but they call it something else, you know, seducing or whatever. They just call it something else. Um, and we know that there was a, uh, um, there have been studies where, you know, young men, um, college men, older, but still young men um, are asked, you know, would you, is it okay to rape a woman? And they, most of them say no. But if you say, is it, is it okay um, to kind of pressure a woman into sex she might not want, um, a significant number of them, and it's anywhere from one third to two thirds, depending on what study you look at, significant number of them say yes. So she said that men believe, and she's telling these guys, men believe they have a right to rape, but they call it something else. And they make it part of institutional structures. It's just part of, you know, the institution and what you expect in dating and in marriage. Um, and she 
she even, and this is, she's saying this to all these guys who think that they're these wonderful, sensitive men. Um, she says that uh, as long as your sexuality has to do with aggression and your sense of entitlement to humanity has to do with being superior to other people, and there is so much contempt and hostility in your attitude towards women and children, how could you not be afraid of each other? I think that you rightly perceive without being willing to face it politically that men are very dangerous because you are. Homophobia is also very important. It's very important to the way male supremacy works. In my opinion, the prohibitions against male homosexuality exist in order to protect male power. Do it to her. That is to say, as long as men rape, it's very important that men be directed to rape women. As long as sex is full of hostility and expresses both power over and contempt for the other person, it is very important that men not be declassed, stigmatized as female, and used similarly. The power of men as a class depends on keeping men sexually inviolate and women sexually used by men. Homophobia helps maintain that class power. It also keep, helps keep you as individuals safe from each other, safe from rape. If you want to do something about homophobia, you are going to have to do something about the fact that men rape and that forced sex is not incidental to male sexuality, but it is in practice paradigmatic, which means that it is the characteristic. It's like, you know, paradigm. This is what male sexuality is designed to be about. And, you know, and she, she saw the men getting kind of restive, um, getting, <laughs> um, looking really hostile. Um, and she says, you know, what's involved with doing something about all of this? The men's movement, which was what it was called, let's be nice guys, um, seems to stay stuck on two points. The first is that men don't really feel very good about themselves. How could you? The second is that men come to me or to other feminists and say, what you're saying about men isn't true. It isn't true of me. I don't feel that way. I'm opposed to all of this. And this is the famous quote. And I say, don't tell me, tell the pornographers, tell the pimps, tell the war makers, tell the rape apologists and the rape celebrationists and the pro-rape ideologues, tell the novelists who think that rape is wonderful, tell Larry Flint, tell Hugh Hefner. There's no point in telling me. I'm only a woman. There's nothing I can do about it. These men presume to speak for you. They are in the public arena saying that they represent you. If they don't, then you had better let them know. Um, and if you, um, you know, if you read no other essay in the book, Feminist Agenda and this would be, um, would be the two that I would point you to if you could only read two. Yeah, I agree, Marion. I mean, that insight that men are using women as a buffer to shield themselves or to dissuade or to, to kid themselves that they're not a threat to each other and that they sort of, they, they watch pornography in order to see a woman pummeled um, so that they can be reassured that they're not going to be the one pummeled because the men, the men are their, their violent counterparts. I think, I mean, that's a massive contribution to feminist theorising. and I, I really agree with that. Um, and it's taken up in another, a later chapter towards the end, um, why so-called radical men love and need pornography from 1977. And I think sisters will, will know this one well as well. So this one, this chapter's are quite, uh, the genre is slightly, the mode is slightly different. So it's written as a parable. Uh, so don't, yeah, don't be put off by that. It's just a um, little bit different. Um, but what it, it's, its major point supports what Sheila Jeffries and others have said about uh, the sexual revolution being, uh, you know, a bourgeois male revolution of some kind and uh, spelling uh, bad things for women from, uh, from that point onwards. Um, but interestingly, uh, Dworkin homes in a little bit more specifically uh, than rather than just the big sort of sexual revolution in toto, 
uh, on the Vietnam War. Uh, so I really love this chapter for that, that insight. Um, I just happened to be reading uh, one of Dave Graver's, sorry to mention a man's book, uh, Dave Graver's book uh, this week, and he made the interesting comment, and I hadn't realised this actually, but America came off the gold standard also uh, because of the Vietnam War, and obviously that heralded massive, massive changes for our world in terms on the capitalism side, but we're not talking about that. But I just thought, you know, gee whiz, back in 1977, you know, Dawkins understood the, the you know, the, the major significance of the Vietnam War and the way that she understood it. Um, so it's in parable form, so it's a little bit difficult to understand this quote, but I'll read it out. On page 220, the sons, faithful to the penis, bonded with the fathers who had tried to kill them in the Vietnam War by sending them off. Only this alliance... Only in this alliance could they make certain that they would not again be bound on the altar for sacrifice. Only in this alliance could they find a social and political power that could compensate them for their waning virility. Only in this alliance could they gain access to the institutionalised brute force necessary to revenge themselves on the women who had left them. This is the women of the left who had become radical feminists by that stage. The perfect vehicle for forging this alliance was pornography. The fathers, no strangers to pornography, used it as a secret ritual. In it, they intoned chants of worship to their own virility, sometimes only a memory because they were old by that stage. These chants conjured up a promised land where male virility never waned, where the penis in of itself embodied pure power. The fathers also used pornography to make money in their systems. Secret vice was the alchemist's gold. So Dawkins suggests to us that there was uh, intra, intra class, so intra male class. Uh, serious conflict that arose over the Vietnam War for the fact that the fathers, not sending themselves off to war, but sending off, you know, the son's generation. Uh, and, you know, obviously that war killed millions. Um, and seeing how vicious the fathers could be, and then the anti-Vietnam War protests obviously built a groundswell of uh, lefty men, particularly in America, and obviously women supported them and joined with them in fighting the Vietnam War. Uh, but then realised that the sexism was too much for them, started to break away, and those that younger generation of men were then faced with the possibility of either acting in solidarity with the women in order to get them back, in other words, disabuse, you know, getting rid of the sexism that they were, you know, doing against the women, or finding a way to restore relations of male solidarity with the father generation. And pornography was crucial to them having been able to do this. So the fathers, for the first time, allowed democratisation of pornography as the vehicle um, so that the sons took it up as the male birthright. And obviously the world that we live in now is as a result of that shift. So she's not saying pornography didn't exist before the democratisation. She, she says it, that did. But, of course, all of us know we've lived through a history where it was secret and shunned and sort of elite male consumed and then we came to this world and something happened there. And, that, and she suggests here, I think, in, in rough terms, that it was, you know, a, a revolution of some kind. Yeah, she, um, she makes a point in, in several places. And one of the essays um, is that capitalism has absolutely nothing to do with it, um, that, that the, um, the, the oppression of women um, and how men view women um, was long before capitalism. Um, if um, you know, if, if in the time of the pyramids, um, nobody was, I don't think anybody was putting pornographic hieroglyphics on a stone. Um, but I'm, but the point is, is that there was the same attitudes being conveyed, communicated 
um, from men down generation to generation and among each other. Um, and, and that this was in, you know, pre-capitalist agrarian primitive societies. Um, the, the rest of the book, I mean, there's a lot of um, other essays and we can kind of jump around for a little bit just to kind of note a few of them. There's one on a um, on an author named Susanna C-I-B-B-E-R, and, you know, I've never heard it pronounced, so I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. She wrote a book called The Provoked Wife, which is a biography of an act. Um, it, uh, there's a book, rather, um, a book review of this book, The Provoked Wife, which is a biography of this actress, um, this 18th century actress um, named Susanna Chibber, the author Mary Nash. Um, and I'm not going to go into it because it's kind of like a, uh, um, a book report sort of book review. Um, but if you, uh, if you ever come across um, an author named Mary Nash, who also wrote a number of other books, um, there's a book called The Provoked Wife about this actress, Susanna Chibber. Um, I don't know if you uh, read that essay. That was an interesting one. Um, she, um, there's another essay, and again, jumping around a little because these are short. Some of them are only like, you know, two pages or two or three pages. Um, Who's Press? Who's Freedom? 1983. Um, men Using Power to Suppress Women's Speech and to Keep Women from Publishing. Um, and there's a lot of dirt on what happens in publishing. I'm sure you can chime in on that, Sheila, um, and what publishers expect you to do and ask you to do and, and compromises that writers are, are often asked to make. Um, she, uh, the, her essay reviewed two books, um, one called How Suppress Women's Writing and another one called Intruders of the Rights of Men. Um, and she, she says that, Dworkin says that, you know, the books didn't go far enough, left a lot out about how, how, how oppressive the publishing industry can be um, and, how to, and what it's like to survive as a, as a you know, a women's writer. Um, and then she talks about, and this, is, this I thought was really interesting, a preface to the paperback edition of Our Blood. Um, she talks about what she termed nearly insurmountable difficulties getting the book published. Um, all the events leading up to the writing of the book and the time after when no one would publish it, she couldn't support herself. Um, some women during that time when she couldn't support herself and she would, you know, she would give talks. Some women felt she shouldn't be, she shouldn't ask to be paid for her lectures. Um, magazines and periodicals wouldn't publish her um, because she wouldn't write what they told her to write. They would say, okay, here's an article about this and and here's the, you know, the, um, the, the materials and this is what you should cite and she just, she just wouldn't do it. Um, and, and this is where she starts to talk about when she would give lectures, she would hear more women's stories, <clears throat> rape after rape after rape, and it was unbearable. Um, there's, uh, you know, some other interesting things, an article where she interviews herself um, called Nervous Interview. Um, and, a, and a really interesting article called Loving Books, Male, Female, Feminist, 1985. It was published in Hotwire, which was a women's music magazine. And it asked Andrea Dworkin to write about her identity as a writer. Um, it's, this is a short essay. It's about three pages. And I don't know if you've ever had a, a school textbook where you had to know every single word. So you would need, uh, you would need to yellow highlight the entire thing. Um, this essay is like this, and, and if you, it's very succinct, it's very, very clear, um, and it talks about her identity as a writer. Um, I'd have to read the entire chap, the entire um, essay to do it justice. But if you're going to read this book, and this is what it looks like, um, if you're going to read this book, um, Loving Books, um, if you want to know about 
why she wrote, how she wrote. I mean, it's very, very personal and it's not hit you over the head in your face. It's very um, introspective and reflective. Um, are there any other, any essays that other of these short essays that stuck out to you, Caroline? There was just one point I wanted to mention about the violence against women, it breaks the heart, also the bones, which is a 1984 chapter. Um, and it's in a footnote. And I just wanted to mention it to uh, give sisters the sense of just how far ahead Dworkin was of all of us um, and particularly liberal feminists. But in that chapter, in a footnote, she mentions that women were being arrested uh, by the police using domestic violence laws. So obviously we've had Anna Kerr in Australia in particular, but other sisters who have talked about domestic violence laws being used against women once the police um, come to the door and then decide that if you know the, the perpetrator's got any little tiny mark on his face, then that must be the, the fault of the, the victim and she, therefore she must be charged as well. And that, that apparently is a very common outcome of calling the police on domestic violence perpetrators from what Annika and others have told me. Um, and so she mentioned, she, she's already mentioning this in 1984, and it's only, I've noticed two amongst liberal feminists that it's becoming, in Australia at least, becoming a topic that they seem to be vaguely aware of now. But we're talking 30 years ago she, that she wrote that in a book. So I thought, you know, like you said there, Marion, like the extent to which she spoke to women and listened um, and went all over the country and was open to hearing what women had to say, comes out in her writing in every, even in footnotes that she, she obviously, somebody told her and she obviously picked it up and understood what they were talking about. But this is 30 years ago. So it's just, yeah, amazing. Yeah, that was um, Violence Against Women Breaks the Heart, also the Bones. There was a speech in Ireland. She, she was, you know, talking, um, it was uh, at a conference on pornography and also a, a really good summary of the basic concepts in her book, Pornography, Men Possessing Women. Um, there's another one, um, and again, we're jumping around because you know, these essays are two and three pages. Sexual Economics, The Terrible Truth from 1976. This was a speech to the women who worked at the publisher, Harper and Rowe, the publisher of her book, Our Blood. Um, and it talks about women as producers, you know, in terms of reproduction and men as owners of the products. Um, she also goes on to talk about housework as exploitation, but to read one more um, passage from that, the relationship between the woman who labors and produces and the man who owns the product is at once sexual and economic. In reproduction, sex and economics cannot be separated, nor can they be distinguished from each other. A woman's material reality is determined by a single sexual characteristic, a capacity for reproduction. The man takes a body that is not his, claims it, sows his so-called seed, reaps a harvest. He colonizes a female body, robs it of its natural resources, controls it, uses it, depletes it as he wishes, denies it freedom and self-determination so that he continue, can continue to plunder it, moves on at will to conquer other land which appears more verdant and alluring. Radical feminists call this exclusively, exclusively male behavior phallic imperialism and see in it the origins of all other forms of imperialism. Um, so, which is, you know, more in your face, uh, Andrea Dworkin, but, um, her, her, um, her exposition of that, you know, it's more than just that passage. There's a lot before and it's a lot after, um, but that's one of the essays where she, where she, you know, talks about and, and presents some, you know, evidence to, um, to demonstrate that this is not because of capitalism. This happens in any society. 
this is like this is well, a it's, yeah the reverse the universal the, the institutions yeah, yeah institutions are pre-configured so that men get access such as marriage such as other institutions like prostitution pre-configured such that men get access sexual access to women and it's through yep. that sexual access that then colonization is achieved and through its colonization then it's achieved then further yeah economic development on the men men's side is achieved apparently yeah and it all starts with the fundamental fact of our biology um you know so that um when you read Andrea Dworkin, you know, or, you know, when you're thinking about it and saying, what is this saying to me? Um, it's saying that radical feminism is a material analysis. It starts with a material fact, our biological existence. Um, I think we're about out of time, so we should stop. We could keep thanks, talking. Marianne, that was great. Yeah, thanks, sisters. That's great. Yeah, this was fun. Um, anyway, uh, thanks very much, everybody, and we will see you next week. Next week.